Hey, good morning, ABC Church. My name is Josh McEwen, and I work with youth ministry here, and I get to bring you guys some announcements, and I'm super pumped, so pumped that I'm not telling you, give each other a high five. If you're by yourself, I'll high five you. That was totally my hand. Anyways, our first announcement we got this morning is tonight is worship night. At 7 p.m., we're going to be headed to the worship center uh, to have a chance to sing a ton of songs and give praise to God through the act of worship. And we hope to see you there. Again, that is tonight at 7 p.m. And next, coming up, October 24th, is our missions conference. We're inviting in our local and global missionaries to share their experience in their cross-cultural environments. If you want to hear what they're learning, how God is using them, come to that conference at 5 p.m. where there'll be a free dinner. And again, that's October 24th. There's also going to be a kids program where kids can experience this as well. And finally, something that we're super excited for over here at ABC is our annual Awaken Conference, where we have over 300 students from across the whole county, multiple different churches coming in to experience a two-day conference, November 12th and 13th. This year's theme is called Technicolor. We're going to be looking into how the way of Jesus brings color into our world. We have tons of opportunities for students, including local vendors in the area, huge activities, but also master classes where they can experience how to live out and glorify God in all that they do. Again, that is going to be November 12th to the 13th, a two-day conference, but not an overnighter. If you have any questions about that, feel free to email kelsey at abcchurch.org and we'll get you signed up, connected, and there to experience what God has to offer. Um, all that said and done, we hope you guys enjoy the service and have an amazing Sunday. Good morning, ABC family. We're so grateful that you tuned in to join us as we continue to preach our way through the book of Titus today. My name is Gerald. I'm discipleship pastor here at ABC, and it's my joy to open the Word of God with you this morning. Today, this passage is one of the most rich passages on the grace of God, and we're just going to dive in and seek to figure out what is, what is this grace of God all about so that we can lean in and allow God's grace to have its full effect in our lives. Last week, Jeff taught us real clearly from the, the verses preceding, especially verse 10 here, where it says, in everything we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Jeff made it real clear that we are to live godly lives, and he showed us what that needs to look like for older women, older men, younger men, younger women. Each person in their own life stage, this is supposed to look uniquely different for. But the question that just hangs over us is, why? Why should we want to live a godly life? And God's answer in this passage today is because of his grace. We are to live a godly life. We are to adorn the doctrine of Jesus, our Savior, because God's grace has appeared. So my goal this morning in this message is to almost overwhelm us with truths about God's grace from his word so that we can bask in it and that our minds might be warmed and our hearts might be warmed to understand it so that we can live in light of it. You may have heard it said, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And while that is true, it really misses the heart of the identity of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that heart of that identity is we are a saint. We're a, we're a chosen child of the Most High God. So it might be more accurate for us to say, I'm a chosen child of the Most High God that by grace 
I have an ongoing struggle against sin. It's not as easy to say as the other one, but it's more accurate to living the Christian life. So today, I want to overwhelm us with the goodness of God's grace. And one way that I can do that is just by reading verse after verse after verse from God's word, what it has to say about grace. So I'll do that. I'll try not to make too many references to where these are found, but trust me, if you want to know where they're found, I will make that available to you. So here we go. Maybe you want to bow your head. Maybe you want to close your eyes. Do what you can to remove distraction as I read these truths about God's grace from God's word. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths about who you are as a gracious and merciful God and about your role for your grace in our lives. I pray that you would now tune our ears to your voice, that you would open our eyes to understand this passage and that you would quicken our hearts that we might be zealous for good works and eager to lean in and allow your grace to have its full effect in our lives. Be glorified as you hear and answer these prayers. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll begin to read now from Titus 2, verse 11. And again, last week, Jeff said that in everything we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And in verse 11, Paul gives us the answer to the question, why? He says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So why should I live a godly life? Why should I seek to adorn the doctrine of Jesus Christ? Why should I display the character of God in my life? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. The grace of God showed up on earth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is manifested in the world in a person. His name is Jesus. Jesus lived a sinless life of perfect righteousness and he gave his life as our substitute, ultimately laying that life down as a sacrifice in our place on Calvary's cross. And through that, he made perfect payment for the sins of the entire world, of all mankind, ours included. And for those who believe in Jesus, he counts our faith as righteousness. And he freely offers eternal life for people in all countries, nations, from every tongue and tribe, of every walk of life, without regard to skin color, without regard for race or gender or political affiliation or sexual orientation, socioeconomic status or age. Without regard, Christ brings salvation for all people. Now note, this, it does not say that he brings salvation to all people. That would be universalism. He is bringing it for, it is freely offered for all people. And the Bible is very clear that whosoever believes in Jesus is the one who shall not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible is also clear that we serve a God who is not willing that any should perish but desires that all people should be saved. So God says, come. And by the power of the Spirit, some of us hear the gospel and respond to it in faith. And so we receive God's grace and enter into the fullness of this salvation that he has for us. And sadly, many of us in the Western world tend to think that that's the extent of God's grace. 
It's like a get out of hell free card that we can point to or flip out in order to make ourselves feel better as we continue to sin. But that, my friends, is cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a scholar, a, a man after God's own heart, and he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in this book, in early on, he contrasts the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. And contrary to cheap grace, he says that costly grace is the sanctuary of God. It has to be protected from the world and not thrown to the dogs. It is therefore the living word, the word of God, which he speaks as it pleases him. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. Grace is costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how do I live a godly life? How do I adorn the doctrine of God? How do I display the character of Christ? The answer is that grace trains us to live a godly life in verse 12. Let's read again verse 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So it trains us to renounce our ungodliness. That's the first half of verse 12. And the word used here is one that describes the process of raising children. If you've ever been a parent, you know what it's like to need to use corrective discipline to drive out the lack of wisdom, to drive out the independence from a child who is to have a dependent heart and attitude on their parent. So God's grace trains us for ungodliness. It drives that out of us. I grew up on a farm and I needed to grow into my identity as a family farm member. And I can remember a time when I was in middle of elementary school, maybe 10, 11, something like that. I was assisting my grandfather as he worked on a farm implement. So he was under this machine working and I was standing beside him, handing him wrenches and things like that. And he came to a point in the repair where he needed a 18 inch crescent wrench. And he said, Gerald, there's an 18-inch crescent over in the yellow grain truck on the other side of the yard. Run over there and get it for me. So, being the independent kid that I was, I thought, oh, Grandpa needs this fast. I know it'll help. I'll get my motorcycle, and that'll make it go faster. So instead of running that way to go get the wrench, I ran that way to go get my motorcycle. And it wouldn't start. And of course, by the time Grandpa asked where I was, I could have already run over there and get the wrench, <laughs> but I was still trying to start my motorcycle. Why? I was lazy. I, I didn't want to run. I thought it would be more fun to ride my motorcycle over there. So just like though I was born into a family farm, there were some unhealthy habits like laziness that needed to be trained out of me, and I needed to learn how to live in light of my identity 
as a member of a family farm. And just like my dad and my grandpa needed to drive out my laziness, grace acts as a trainer to drive out ungodliness from us who are in Christ Jesus. So what do we mean by ungodliness? What is this ungodliness that we need to be delivered from, that we need trained out of us? Well, if you look at the near context here, just, just a few verses ahead of us in chapter 2, we can look at the things that Paul is speaking against or the opposite of the things that he is speaking us into. And we find that ungodliness is, is being harebrained or weak-minded. It's being undignified. It's lacking self-control. It's being unhealthy in our faith and in our love. It's being apathetic, irreverent, being slanderers or slaves to much wine. It's being impure and unsubmissive. It's when we're lacking self-control or lacking integrity and dignity, having an untamed tongue. It's when we're argumentative or pilfering, or another way to say pilfering is we tend to steal things from others. That's the ungodliness that is to be trained out of us. And the Bible's very clear that this ungodliness is a result of threefold opposition in every Christian. We have the opposition of the world, which is just a system of seeking to find life and health and happiness apart from God. We have the flesh, the desires of the body and the carnal mind. And we have the devil, the personal enemy of God who opposes everything that God seeks to do. So if we are trying to grow in godliness or if we are being trained to let go of ungodliness, we can bet that there's a battle against the flesh. There's a battle against the system of the world and there's a battle against the devil. And grace trains us to renounce these things. And the word that is translated here in the English Standard Version as renounce is the same word that was used in chapter 1, verse 16. As Paul talks about these people who are unfit for any good work, these people who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. It's the same word that is translated there as deny. It's also the same word that describes what Peter did three times on the night of Jesus' crucifixion when he denied knowing Jesus. So we are to deny ungodliness. We're, we are to renounce it. Okay, so that helps us understand. But what do we really mean when we say renounce? Well, if you look up that term online, you'll find that it means a formal declaration of abandonment. That means that we name this sin, this ungodliness. Even we name it out loud before God, perhaps before another brother or sister in Christ. We confess it to God. We confess it to a brother or a sister. And then we believe that God actually forgives us. We take him at his word when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And then we resolve to forsake that sin in the strength that the Lord will provide by his grace. This process is spiritual warfare. There is a battle a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Listen to how Paul describes that battle in Galatians chapter 5. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. One of our ministries here is Celebrate Recovery, 
And this ministry is built on eight principles that have been gleaned from the Beatitudes out of Matthew chapter 5. And principle number two really gets this right. Celebrate Recovery principle number two says this, earnestly believe that God exists and that I matter to him and that he has the power to help me recover. Now this word recover carries with it some baggage. We tend to think that the only people that need recovery are people who are addicted to substances or pornography or you name it. But in actuality, we're all addicted to things. We all have our idols and we all need to be recovered from these sins. Another way to say it is, he has the power to renew my mind. He has the power to transform me. And the key here is that we are needing to rely on divine power, not our strength. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, there's a battle for truth going on in your mind and in my mind. It's because we're all prone to believe lies about God and we always live out that which we believe to be true even when what we're believing to be true is a lie. So what are the weapons of our warfare? Ephesians 6 reminds us that we have two weapons. God gives us two weapons in this battle. That's the word of God, which he calls the sword of truth and prayer. And so we, we wage this war with our Bibles open. We wage this war on our knees. We take every thought captive. We, we take the truth of the word of God, what it has to say about God and what it has to say about us, and we believe it. And we begin to live in light of these truths. So what do you need to renounce today? What do you need to say no to? What do you need to leave in the rear view mirror in order to more fully embrace God's grace? Is it your apathy or your self-control? Maybe it's your tendency to escape the pressures of this world by diving headlong into alcohol or food, online shopping, binge watching of Netflix, video games, maybe pornography. What is it that you need to renounce today? The scripture here tells us this. God's grace shows up, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right now. We don't believe that God is only going to remove that from us in the future. We participate in this today, in the present age. So don't put this off until tomorrow. Don't presume upon God's grace. If you are feeling a tinge of conviction, that's the Spirit inviting you to more fully embrace God's grace. The second thing that grace does for us in, in the second half of verse 12 is this, grace trains us to walk in godliness. So just like there was an element of corrective discipline training us to renounce bad things or ungodliness, there is an element of formative discipline that trains us to walk in godliness, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. And these two things happen together in one motion. We turn from sin 
and turn to Christ through the process of repentance. When we renounce ungodliness, we actually grow in godliness and our lives take on an ever-increasing resemblance to the character of Christ. We begin to love the things that he loves and we begin to hate the things that he hates. You see, grace does not stop at saving us. It also trains us to live a godly life. So what does the grace-embraced life look like? What does it look like for me to display the doctrine of God our Savior? Verse 13 tells us that we actively wait in hope. It says we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another way that we can translate the word blessed is happy. It's the same word that is used in the Beatitudes where it says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some translations that you might read would say happy are the poor in spirit. So living a godly life is really a life of active waiting where we are renouncing ungodliness and we're living self-controlled upright lives because we have a happy hope. And what is it that we're waiting for? What is our happy hope? We're waiting for the appearing of Jesus Christ. Notice that this is the second time that the word appearing occurs here in this passage for today. The first time it appears is in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, pointing to the first time that Jesus showed up on earth. If you think back on that, he was born as a baby, right? In, in very humble means. If there's a one-word descriptor of his first appearing, it would be that of humility. And if we want to think about the primary role of his first appearing, it was that of a suffering servant. When you think about a defining moment of his first appearing, it's the death on the cross. And his intended result for that was that he would bring salvation from sin for whoever believes in himself. And we are to long for the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the second appearing. He has since been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father and he's coming back again. He's going to appear again. And we are living in that age that's right between these two appearings. As we think about the second appearing, a one-word description would be glory. A defining moment would be the judgment seat of Christ. The primary role of Jesus in that second appearing is that of a righteous judge. And the intended result is that each person, each man, each woman, each child is judged according to what they had done on earth in their body. The dead will be thrown into the lake of fire. And those who are alive in Christ will enter eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Paul says this to the church in Colossae. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is our hope. We once in Christ, in the future, at his second appearing, will be in glory with Christ. So what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the appearing of Jesus. More specifically, this passage says that we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ. 
Paul unpacks this more clearly in Romans 5. He says this, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's the glory of God that is our hope, and we rejoice in that hope as we are standing in his grace. So what is the glory of God? That's a big word. That's like a multi-million dollar word that means so much, and it can mean so much that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. I've asked a couple of guys much smarter than I to help me understand it, and as I did some research, I see that John Piper pastor and biblical scholar says this, God's glory is the infinite beauty and the greatness of God's manifold perfections on public display. It's his beauty and greatness of his perfections in public display. Eric Tonis is the chairperson of the theology department at Biola University and he defines God's glory in this way. He says, it is the manifestation of the excellence of God's character. It's the display of his holiness and his worth and beauty. So you just take the, the perfections and the excellence of God's character and you put it on public display in beauty. That's what glory is. That is what our hope is. The perfections of the character of God on display. So what does the Bible say about the glory of God? It says a lot, but there are a few things I want to highlight for us. John 17, the, the high priestly prayer, is really helpful in understanding Jesus' view of the glory of God. He says that God's glory exists from eternity past in the loving community of our triune God. Jesus also helps us understand that, that he glorified God by accomplishing the work that the Father sent him to do while he was on the earth. We can learn in Philippians 2 that God exalted Jesus so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in John chapter 15, we learn that we who believe in Jesus glorify the Father when we bear much fruit and so prove to be his disciples. So in whatever we do, we are to do all for the glory of God, all for the display of his excellent character publicly. And the new Jerusalem does not need sun or moon for light, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb of God. Our eternity will be spent living in the light of the manifestation of the excellence of God's character. And this passage says that the return of Christ in glory is our happy hope. It's in that day that we'll be fully free from the effects of sin. Our trials will be over. There'll be no more pain, no more night, no more tears. No more will we hurt other people, and no more will other people hurt us. Those things or people that made our life miserable on earth, they will get what they deserve because Jesus comes as the righteous judge. We who are in Christ will not get what we deserve but we will receive the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ, eternal life in his glorious presence. That 
is the outcome of God's grace for those who know and trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that day is coming. That day. And that is our happy hope. But we can get bogged down in details on this earth, can't we? In our home, uh, we are in a season of wedding planning. Our daughter Anna will be marrying her fiance Ryan this coming spring. And there are all kinds of details and all kinds of stress surrounding what kind of a venue do we want? What color should the bridesmaid dresses be? Can we afford a professional photographer? My daughter is just under the stress of all these things. What time should the ceremony be? What do we serve for dinner? How many guests will we invite? But here's the thing. On wedding day, all those details and all the time that she invested in finding answers to those questions will fade into the background. Her eyes are going to be fixed on her groom and she will just rest in the glory of the beauty of that day. And that's the same for us. There's a wedding day coming for the bride of Christ, which is the church, to be united with the groom who is Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And on that day, the things that we gave up in this life in order to get the good news of the gospel, of the grace of God, out to our family members, our co-workers, our teammates, even to the ends of the earth, those things will not seem like a bad investment. All the toil and the effort and the energy that we put into leaving behind ungodliness in pursuit of godliness will be a wise investment on that day. It will all be worth it. So a question as we consider this truth. What is the Holy Spirit prompting you to renounce today as you embrace God's grace in light of his glory? What is the Spirit of God asking you to leave behind? The Apostle Peter wrote a letter, a couple of letters actually, and in his second letter, chapter 3, he asks this question. He says, since the earth and everything in it is going to be dissolved with intense heat, speaking of the day of the, the return of Christ, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. This is our end. As we wait, we are being purified, and as we're being purified, we are hastening the coming of the day of God. As we proclaim the good news of the gospel of God's grace, more and more people hear, more and more people respond. That hastens that day coming. So what do we need to leave behind? What do we need to renounce? Because that's why Jesus came. Verse 14 is very clear. Jesus purifies us as we wait. He came to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. Because pure people reflect his glory on this earth. And so I plead with you, I plead with us, Let's be a people who fully embrace God's grace and allow him to purify us. Let's be a people who reflect the excellence of his character, who declare his glory on this earth. Let's be a people who proclaim his excellencies with our words and with our lifestyle so that when people look at us, they see Jesus. 
that brings glory to God and that builds his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for these truths. We just thank you and we praise you for your grace in all of its manifold goals. Thank you that your grace doesn't stop at saving us, but it actually continues with every breath that we take to purify us and to make us into a people for your own possession who are zealous to join you in your work. And Lord, that's what we want. We want to live lives that tell the truth about you. And we want to live lives that tell the truth about you to other people. And we're powerless to do that. We humbly depend on you. We look to you. We beg you for a fresh filling of your spirit. We beg you for forgiveness for sins. And we ask you yet for more power to resist, to renounce sin. So that we might live lives of godliness. Because you are worthy of our worship and our praise. For yours and yours alone is the glory. So work this out in us. Work this out through us. Help us to fully embrace your grace for your glory. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.